So when you get the chance to stop and look at what's going on in a scene where you get to move into the presence of God, when you get to have a chance to see a little bit of what's taking place in the spiritual realm, uh, you sometimes get surprised by the things that are going on there. And there's an intention of teaching to us about how great our God is and who He is and what we're supposed to do in regards to that greatness. One of the things that I think is interesting about where we sit here in Isaiah chapter 6 uh, is this is an unusual place for a commissioning of a prophet. Uh, usually when you read about a prophecy beginning, it'll tell you about the prophet and what little there is perhaps to know about him and why he's doing what he's doing. And it is interesting that we've gone five chapters in Isaiah, and now suddenly we're going to have this statement about Isaiah getting commissioned by God for the task that he's about to do. And so I want to put in your mind for a moment to consider, well, why now? Why are we waiting so long in the story for this? In fact, the writers come along and say that this is all jumbled out of place and this should have been the very beginning to get us all started. But I submit to you there's something quite powerful going on that Isaiah intends. The first five chapters have described uh, the situation of the people being full of their sins. We looked last week at the problem of them taking the grace of God in vain. God had poured out His blessings and had been gracious to them. We saw the song of the vineyard, this imagery of how God has done everything for His people and that there was no reason for the people not to be fruitful and useful servants of His. When in fact, that's actually not what they were. They were bloodstained, they're filthy, they are full of sins, they are just completely a mess, an abomination before God. And so it's in the midst of that scene you now read in chapter 6 and verse 1 of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Such a fascinating beginning. And he points out something rather interesting, a little historical background. The death of King Uzziah, somewhat unprecedented for this king because he reigned for 52 years. That's a long time in those days. And he ruled over a time of some pretty good prosperity. And so we're given a little bit of a time marker here that things are about to change. And a dramatic downturn is is about to occur as now Isaiah steps into the presence of God and just simply can utter the words, I saw the Lord. I saw him seated at the, at the, upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And what I want you to do in the next few minutes with me is really try to visualize what Isaiah is seeing. I want you to see this uh, house, this temple, throne room scene of God. And I want you to see this robe that the Lord Almighty is is wearing. And notice the train of the robe is so long and so vast that it just fills up the whole throne room scene. That has a symbol of majesty. It carries a symbol of beauty. It carries an imagery of power. 
Sometime back, you probably cared and watched something that I was a child and did not care to watch and did not have any use for in the slightest. When Princess Diana was married, the train of her dress could arguably have said to have filled the chapel as it went all the way on and on and on. And think about how that was a picture of majesty, a picture of royalty, a picture of greatness. And here is the train of the robe of God, and it is filling the whole room. It just fills up the whole throne scene. As Isaiah looks and he sees the Lord God Almighty high and lifted up on the throne, which is the way kings always sat. Think about even in, on, on earth how king, kings and queens never sit on eye level. They're always elevated. You are the subjects, and there is royalty exalted. And notice the imagery is very high and lifted up. As Isaiah is looking up and seeing the throne room scene of God, highly exalted, and his robe then filling this throne room. Verse 2, above him are seraphim. We have no idea what they are. All that we know is that word literally means burning ones. And that's a curious thing. In the picture that's given there, each had six wings, two covered his face, two covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so above the Lord resides these burning ones with wings. Verse 3, they're saying things to each other. And what they are saying, think of all the things that could have been said about the Lord. And what it says there is they're calling out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Calling it out to each other. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. You know, that reminds you of Mount Sinai as God spoke the Ten Commandments and the earth nearly melted at that moment. As the mountain shook, the smoke burned from the mountain, and God spoke the Ten Commandments as a voice of trumpets such that when God was done, the people told Moses, do not let him talk to us anymore, for they were in such fear. The foundations of this temple throne room scene are quaking as the Lord Almighty speaks. And the house is filled with smoke. This is quite a scene. And I want you just to think for a moment what you think your response would be and what you would suppose Isaiah's response would be. Do you suppose that we would be able to go into the throne room of God and be able to look around at that and go, wow, this is really cool. Not bad, you know, some good pyrotechnics in here. We've got smoke. We've got burning ones. Pretty neat. Now, what's the attitude that we're going to have as we walk into the scene and we see the Lord high and lifted up 
and the, the robe is filled all throughout and these burning ones are calling out to one another about the holiness of God. What are you going to say? What is going to be your reaction to this? I want us to consider how these are simply the only words that can ever be said by anybody when presented with the throne room scene of God. You know, sometimes we have an idea that, well, when we get before God, we can have something to say. You know, if we were in His presence, we'd have some kind of argument to make, that we would have some kind of dialogue. We kind of have a a Job idea. Well, if God would come down here to my level, you know, I could kind of set Him straight and tell Him the way it is. There's no other words that are going to come out of anybody's mouth but verse verse 5. Woe is me, for I'm ruined. My paraphrase, it's over for me. I'm undone. It's the end. And notice why. For I am, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. And Isaiah begins to appreciate something that is critical for all of us to appreciate when we think about who God is. None of us can approach Him. None of us can come near to Him. None of us can come around Him, draw close. It's not possible. As soon as Isaiah comes into this scene, he thinks it is the end. Think about the repetition of scriptures that talks about when special people were able to come into the presence of God, what that did to them. Ezekiel's my favorite. Every time God speaks, Ezekiel falls down. And God picks him back up again. And he falls back down again. And he picks him back up again. He falls back down again. Or the Apostle John and his vision falling down as dead. Isaiah, woe is me. I am ruined. I am undone. There is no ability to go into the presence of God. There is no ability for us to approach Him, come near to Him, to have anything to do with Him. And I want us to consider the reason why. The reason why is not because God is eternal and we are finite. That's not even the reasoning that's given here. The reasoning is not, well, he is high and I am lowly. The reasoning is always throughout the scriptures because he is holy and I am not. He is so utterly and absolutely pure and I am so utterly and absolutely sinful. And coming into the presence of God reveals that singular point to us. How crippled we are by sin. It's all that can be seen. And that's what you read there in verse 5. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among people with unclean lips. 
The intense recognition of our sin is what cannot be missed. Anytime we're anywhere near the idea of God, that's what comes bursting out. Is look at who God is. Do you see His holiness? Do you see the majesty? Do you see the grandeur? And how we by no means as human beings can come anywhere near that scene. And those who ever did fell down dead, believing it was over for them. It is an intense picture that Isaiah is drawing for us, trying to get us to view the corruption that we have and how we recognize that when we come before God. The scriptures tried to teach that in various images, most notably the priesthood. You didn't just get to go before God as much as we visualize that Old Testament scene and we see God in that tabernacle scene. You didn't just grab an animal and say, well, it's my turn to go do a sin sacrifice. I'll drag my animal on into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood up there. You would have been killed. There was an intense imagery that you do not draw near to this tabernacle. You remain on the outskirts. What I will do for you is I will make holy a special group of people who will be a go-between. And they will serve me on your behalf. And they will bring your animals on my behalf and offer them on my behalf because you cannot come near me in the slightest. And so that was set up from the very beginning. People don't come near God. You don't approach. And even the priesthood had its limitations. Even the priesthood can only come in on certain occasions for certain functions. And we know the concept of where God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. Nobody entered. You never entered that. The high priest, one time in one year, would go in on behalf of the people. And at that moment it would be tolerated. And the altar of incense would be smoking and fill the room of the Holy of Holies as blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, to deal with the people's sins. People do not approach God. In the scene that we recalled with Mount Sinai, what did God say before that even happened? He said, make sure nobody comes near this mountain when I come to speak these commandments to you. In fact, make sure no animal even comes near this mountain, for it will die if anyone comes before me. The intensity of the holiness of God. We are ruined by our sins, by our moral corruption, such that we cannot even come close. That even when God, in not bearing his full presence, but comes and just speaks or fills a room or has smoke on a mountain or comes in some semblance, nobody can be near that. No one can come near. And so here is Isaiah in that very scene. And I want us to feel the fear that would just go through our bones. If we had the opportunity to enter into a scene like this, that there would be no other response but woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. 
I've lost. It's over. That's what makes verse 6 and verse 7 so staggering. When we get a feel of the holiness of God, it then begins to help us appreciate what God means about He doesn't want that to be the result of just destroying everybody who comes near. The point of this scene is not for Isaiah to go, Woe is me, I'm ruined. And God goes, Yep. And there goes Isaiah, he's dead. That would have been fitting, that would have been right. But that's not what God wants. So what you see is just beautiful in verse 6. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God has to act. Immediately you see a scene here that what is Isaiah going to say? What is Isaiah going to do in this immensity of holiness that is before him? There's nothing he can do. He's trembling at this scene. Woe is me. But God acts. God now sends one of his spiritual beings An atonement is made. Guilt is taken away. Sin is dealt with. And it is useful for us to consider that this is the purpose of God in creation. God's purpose is not our annihilation, though deserving it is of us. God's purpose is for us to see the need for grace and mercy And then he desires to impart that to us. When Isaiah recognizes where he is in the scheme of things before God, God now acts. He says, I'm going to deal with your sin. I'm going to take away the guilt. I'm going to atone for those things. It is not God's purpose for annihilation, but God's purpose for salvation. For God to help us see our need for mercy. To help us stand before him yet again and receive grace. And so as we ask at the beginning, why is this commission here? Why isn't this at the very beginning? What is giving Isaiah now the right to record this scene after he's already been preaching to this, this filthy people that are full of sins? Why now? What is going on here that this now needs to be the location? And I want us to consider why these first five chapters are useful And I believe why Isaiah has this scene right here. What we've seen in these first five chapters is essentially a summary question that would be this. How can the present corrupt, rebellious Israel that is defying the uh, very instructions and statutes and laws of God, how can it ever become the promised, clean, obedient Israel for whom all the nations are supposed to learn instruction. This was the God-given charge of the nation. How is it going to be that this nation is going to be made pure? How is it going to be possible for this rebellious people to be fulfilling the promises of God? How is this all going to be accomplished? And that's why I think Isaiah has this here. Is because the actions of what transpires with Isaiah and the Lord represent what God is going to do with the nation. That Isaiah recognizes his place before God 
And now God is going to act in mercy irregardless of the fact that Isaiah is a man of unclean lips. And now the nation, a people full of unclean lips, are going to have before them the very opportunity to do the same. And it sets the tone of where Isaiah is going to go over the next few years that we spend doing Isaiah. Not consecutively, don't worry. We'll take plenty of breaks. In fact, this is our breaking point. We'll come back to Isaiah for a while. But it sets the tone of the book. You're full of your sins, but God is going to act in mercy. God is going to save you so that you can be the people that God has called you to be. He's going to work something in the lives of this nation and cause it so that they can become what he has purposed for them to become. Now, usually sermons stop right here, but we're not going to do that because this is where it gets really neat. Verse eight continues the picture because now you have this amazing scene now that Isaiah's sin has been atoned for and guilt has taken away. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord. Now stop there for a minute in the scene. What does the voice of the Lord do? Thresholds shaking, quaking, smoke. We got everything going right now. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Great call. God has a question that rings through this smoke-filled throne room as the thresholds and pillars of the room shake and move. Who's going to go for us? Who are we going to send? I want you to consider something that there's a couple of aspects about what Isaiah's response is. When he says there in verse 8, here am I, send me. And the first is that he has this desire to go. This isn't, all right, whoever doesn't want to do this, take one step back. And the last guy standing, you know, he, oh, I look like he volunteered. You know, he wants to, he's going to have to do this. Isaiah immediately, in seeing what God has done, shoots his hand in the air. I want to do it. And I want you to consider something. He doesn't know what he's going to go do. Did you get the job description yet? I'd be like, okay, Lord, what is it? Uh, What do I have to do first? Then I'll let you know. You know, nobody goes into a job interview and goes, now, before uh, uh, we do any of this interview, I just want want the job no matter what. Don't care what I have to do. Uh, No, you always read, well, okay, I got to do this, this, and this. Okay, sounds like I want the job. Isaiah doesn't care what the job is. Lord, if you have something that needs to be done, if there's something that needs to be accomplished, who are you going to send? You're going to send me because I see what you've now done for me. I have seen my sin and I have seen you atone for my sin. And so if you have something to request, I'm in. Here am I. Send me. That is what discipleship looks like. It is not a question of, do I have to? It's not a question of, is there somebody else around here who's going to do this? You don't see Isaiah like, you know, asking the spiritual beings, can you do that? If there's something that God wants, here am I, send me. If there's something that God requires here, I am, send me. Something that I can do for the kingdom of God, here I am, send me. That's the picture. 
And that only happens, that kind of spirit, that kind of desire only happens when we see the severity of our sin and how God has atoned for it. When we forget how our sins have been atoned for, then we move back to the, well, do I have to? Is this something that needs to be done? Isn't there somebody else who can do this? Isn't there somebody more qualified than me? All of that becomes erased when I see my massive corruption, when I am woe is me kind of attitude, and I recognize how God has taken away those things. Here am I, said me. Most sermons end there. We're not. Look at verse 9. Now you get the job description. He's already volunteered. I'm in. What's the job description? Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Okay, I will. Verse 9. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Is that the most unusual job description you've ever heard? All right, Lord, I volunteer. I'm in. Let's go. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep on teaching so that they'll keep on hearing and not understand. And I want you to keep on preaching to them so that though they see, they never truly perceive. And I want you to keep preaching yet more so that their hearts become so dull so that they won't turn to me in the slightest. And I'd go, Lord, that didn't sound quite right. Please rephrase. (laughs) I thought the plan was to save this land of unclean lips. How interesting that God says, here's the job description. Go and make the hearts dull. Go and make the ears heavy and the eyes blind. And it's not that God is saying, well, I want to judge these people, so I'm going to make it so they won't turn to me. That doesn't make any sense of the scene. The scene is God doesn't want to annihilate. God wants to save. God wants to atone for sin. But the Lord recognizes the problem. And he tells Isaiah, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go teach. And you know what they're going to do? They're not going to respond. And so you know what I want you to do? I want you to teach some more. And you know what they're going to do? They're not going to respond anymore the next time. Or the next time. Or the next time. Or the next time. And that's the way the Word of God operates. The Word of God will either draw you closer to God, or it will drive you further from God. That's how His message works. When you hear the Word of God, you will either be cut to the heart, and you will desire to draw closer to Him, or you will put up more barricades and obstacles. And you will turn yourself further from him. And God is saying, Isaiah, I want you to know the result. These people aren't coming to me. You're going to preach my message, and they will not turn. 
they're going to put up more barriers their hearts are going to become more like stone their ears are going to become more dull and it is an important warning to us what are we letting the word of God do to us as we read it as we hear it as it's proclaimed what does it do to your heart does it cause you to draw closer to him does it cause you to want to read more does it cause you to want to learn more does it propel you to change your life or is it words on the page and you kind of just shrug it off look into the sky and don't care that's the question and that's what's presented to these people as Isaiah is going to be preaching to them I want you to consider what's intended to Isaiah as well is that there's a call to Isaiah for faithfulness in his proclaiming you see it here in verses 9 and 10 and also the way it's quoted in the New Testament that Isaiah is being told not to just say the message once He's going to keep saying it because they're supposed to keep on hearing and keep on seeing, but not truly understand or perceive. There is a call for faithfulness that we continue to proclaim the message even when nobody is responding. God wants us to save people even if the people aren't turning to him. There is a call to Isaiah. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to preach and they're not going to listen. So go do it. And you kind of want to go, okay, well, let's just cut out the middleman. They're not going to do it. Okay, that's, that's good enough, right? No, you're going to keep proclaiming. You are supposed to keep teaching. You are to keep being the example and opening your mouth and telling people about the good news of our Lord. And so don't stop. Even though their hearts are getting more hard, even though their ears are getting dull, you continue to preach, proclaim, and teach over and over again. In fact, notice what he asked there in verse 11. Oh, how long? Well, how long am I going to do this? If they're not listening and I'm still teaching, how long is this going to go on? Well, for the sake of time, you look at verses 11, 12, and 13. The answer is till God judges them. That's his response. Till I destroy them. You keep teaching until judgment comes. That's the message. Don't stop. Stay faithful to the message. And even if they reject, you keep teaching. This is one of the most frequently quoted passages in the New Testament. Do you know that? This one's a favorite to the New Testament. Give you a bunch of those there. All over the place, Jesus and the apostles are preaching this message. What are they saying? Why would Jesus want to quote this over and over again? Why would the apostles want to quote this over and over again? Because they're standing up and saying, don't let this be you. Don't let this be you, that the word of God drives you further and further away from him until the day of judgment. Return to the Lord. Listen to what God is proclaiming. Don't let your ears grow dull. Don't let your eyes go blind. Don't let your hearts be of stone. Listen to what God has done. Listen to what he's trying to accomplish. See what he's doing for you and let that draw you closer to him. Don't let the word of God drive you away. Don't let yourself become put in that condition. And so for this morning, I want to leave you just with four very simple thoughts. 
of how we can avoid this problem. That we will not be like Jesus and the Apostle Paul had to preach of having this, these dull ears and hard hearts. Number one, see God. It's so easy to simplify God as to being your buddy. You know, it's no big deal. God doesn't really care about what we do. Do what you want to do. Be what you want to be. Live how you want to live. God's cool with whatever choices you make. It's all good. Can we see the holiness of God? Can we see His absolute purity such that He cares about what we do? He is so separate from us, so distinct from us, that we can't even approach Him. We can't come near Him. And to flippantly consider that we can just come to God however we want to come. And we will just live however we want to live. And He'll accept us however He wants to accept us. And it's all going to be okay. Misses the absolute holiness of God. Misses everything that we see in this picture. We cannot come to God. We cannot be near Him. God must act first because of our sinfulness. When we see the holiness of God, then we see ourselves the way we need to see ourselves. When we bring God down to our level, then we don't see our sins anymore. We're not that bad. We're better than everybody else. You know, my sins are not as bad as your sins. Mine are small sins. White lies, little things, whatever. All the things that we like to justify ourselves as to why we do what we do. But when you see the absolute purity and holiness of God, then all that you can see is your utter sinfulness. All that you can see is, woe is me, I'm ruined. And when you can see yourself with that lens, then you're able to truly see God's grace. Now I can appreciate what God is doing. Now all that we are doing here is not boredom. Now all that's being accomplished here is not just simply a checklist to get out the door. Now the things that we're trying to do is not just a matter of, well, God said we got to pray, so I guess we're going to load one up here in just a few minutes. Or He said we got to take the Lord's Supper, so let's make sure we get that off the list. When I see Him and I see myself, and then I appreciate grace, and then that leads me... To do my task. That leads me to accomplish what God has called me to do. That leads me to have a purpose of what God has given me. And I don't look at anything in this life as a matter of, well, do I have to do something? I'm going to shoot my hand in the air like Isaiah and say, I want to do it. Because you've done so much. I want to do it. Because you have allowed me access into the very throne room of God. If I keep you another 30 minutes, we can go go over to the book of Hebrews. Let us therefore 
approach the throne of God with boldness. Are you kidding me? With all that you teach me in the scripture about your throne room? God has atoned for sins. God has reached out and atoned for them. And says, now you can approach. Now you can come near. Now you can be my people. Now I can be with you again. And that's what will make me go to the ends of the earth. And it's why you see apostles going to the death. And it's why you see them forsaking everything and traveling great distances and suffering enormities because of what God has done. What is the Word of God doing to you today? Is the Word of God changing you? Is it giving you purpose? Is it defining your life? Is it molding you into what God has called you to be through His grace? Are our hearts getting harder, ears growing duller, and eyes growing blind? Has this become just simply routine and ritual? Just another thing to do? Just another boredom? Or have you seen the Lord? Have you stood before Him and seen His grace poured out to your heart so that you can stand before Him as a child of His? That's what Isaiah is trying to do for these people. I saw the Lord. He atoned for my sin. And now I must go and serve. The invitation song we're singing is that very thought. See the Lord. See your need. See your forgiveness through His grace. And then become His servant. Go to the ends of the earth serving Him with all of your heart. Becoming what he's called you to be as his workmanship. A changed life, living for him, desiring him, and obeying him. There's no better life purpose for you. There's no higher calling than this. He sent his son to save you from your sins. Receive that calling. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water to have those sins washed away. And then raise your hand in the air and say, Here I am, send me. Won't you come while we stand and while we stand?